Hi, it's Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is the 30th of July, 2013, and we have Don Winkle and Mike Issa on to talk to us about student entrepreneurship and the real flipped classroom. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Steve. It's nice to be here. Really fun to have you both here. Lots of fun coming up this fall. Uh, the end of August, we have the Homeschool Conference. This is uh, recently announced and is going to be a very rapid kind of pulling together, but great response to it and lots of fun. So the, it's homeschoolconference.com, August 23rd and 24th. In September is our STEM X conference. That's STEM plus the variable of all of the other things being added to STEM. Um, Please go to stemxcon.com for more information. Uh, Library 2.013, our third Future of Libraries conference, is in October, the 18th and 19th. And the terrific Global Education Conference, five days, 24 hours a day, November 18th to the 22nd. All of these are free. They're highly participative. They're practitioner-oriented. They're just a great set of events. So please do join us. If you have any trouble finding them, just go to my blog and They'll link. You can get links there. Coming up on the future of education, Anna Michelson and her students on August 20th will talk to us about connected learners. We talk a lot about connected educators, connected librarians. We're going to talk about connected learners with Anne and her students, who secondary school students who have written a book on this. Dave Marshak is going to come on to talk to us on the 27th on self-design, self-directed, self-designed learning. The wonderful Michelle Cordy is going to help us hack your classroom on September 3rd. Doug Johnson talking about librarians on September 10th. This is really fun coming up on the 25th of September. Christine Grosslow on her book, Parenting Without Borders, looking at the differences in parenting between cultures and what that might tell us. Uh, Will Richardson on October 1st, Why School? Yovel Badash on No Child Held Back. Yeah, also in October. And then all of October is Connected Educator Month, which should be a blast again this year. If you've missed any of the shows, they're all recorded. They're in full Blackboard Collaborate form and in MP3. Franz Johansson came on to talk about his book, The Click Moment. This is just one of my high, high recommendations. I loved the book, loved the interview. Uh, again, go to futureofeducation.com to listen to the interview. Or um, I think his book is on special at Amazon. So it's the click moment. Before that, we talked to the folks at Black Mountain Soul, the self-organized learning environment, Black Mountain College being resurrected this year in North Carolina, which is where I will be with my family for the next year. Okay, This is where you get a chance to indicate where you're listening from. Look to the left of the map for the icons. You're looking for the star icon. It's the second one down. You double click on that, click on the map, and then post in the chat maybe where you're listening from, time, temperature, anything out of the ordinary you think we might want to know. There's New Zealand, maybe twice. Hershey, Pennsylvania, <laughs> where the hotel soap even smells like chocolate. Auckland, San Leandro, what a lot of fun. Sure delighted to have you here. 
uh, our family did this really fun trip uh, this year, uh, which started in New Zealand. And one of the things I loved about New Zealand was the food culture. And I actually think there's a very significant story, parallel story, uh, food, uh, health, and education in terms of uh, institutionalization and commercialization. And at some point, I want to do a story on that. So if you're listening from New Zealand and you have any ideas, let me know. Love the food culture in New Zealand. Okay, doke. Feel free to keep putting notes in the chat. If you uh, want to connect with each other, you are welcome to do so. That's why it's there. Don and Mike, don't worry about following the chat. If it's confusing for you, I will notice any questions that come up, and I'll pass them over to you. Don, can I get you to introduce yourself first? Just kind of briefly tell us what you do and, and how you and I connected. Uh, sure, Steve. Um, so my name is Don Winkle, and uh, I teach uh, entrepreneurship at Illinois State University, um, central Illinois, a couple hours south of Chicago, basically. Um, I teach uh, to junior and senior um, undergraduate college students. And I also work there um, as the Associate Director of Programs in a Center for Entrepreneurial Studies we have there. And my job in that role is to basically develop and implement programs um, that try and spread entrepreneurial thinking and action across the university and also try to link um, the, the kind of exciting entrepreneurial stuff that's going on in our university with the local community and also the broader global community. Um, then I'm also involved in a lot of other, there's a couple startups I'm involved in uh, that have to do with regional economic development, some other things. Um, and then Mike, uh, Issa, and I are also co-organizing a global um, student startup uh, competition. So just a couple irons in the fire. Um, and um, I have to apologize uh, for my memory. I always have to do that. But Steve, I actually have no idea how we met. Like, <laughs> I, I shouldn't have put you on the spot like that. You wrote a, <laughs> you wrote a blog post called Student Entrepreneurship yeah. or, on the okay. True Flip Classroom. And that was our connection piece. And um, yes. why don't we get to that in a minute? But before we do so, um, Mike, besides the Grateful Dead, what else ties you to Don? <laughs> well, uh, passion for entrepreneurship on a global scale and a relenting a relentless uh, pursuit of that truthfully I mean Bill is tireless and I draw from his energy and I know that the reverse of that is also true um, we were introduced by uh, Dr. Jeffrey Cornwall of Belmont University and uh, with the idea of coming up with a really unique global student competition sort of thing that has uh, evolved into USASB launch. And, you know, we're birds of a feather, as they say. And so we're relentless and we're out to help as many students and entrepreneurs as we can on a global basis. Thanks, Mike. Well, and I'm going to come back to your wife, Melissa, I think, because I think there's a significance to that story that will play into our discussion tonight. But I have this theory that sometimes the deepest thinking in education goes relatively unnoticed. Um, 
Did you get much attention from that blog post on the True Flips classroom? Uh, no, of course not. Um, I, I wish I would have, and, and um, you know that was uh, early on in my venture into blogging and social media and such. So, you know, I, I'm not as versed at spreading that kind of stuff out there, but um, I didn't get a lot of response from that. Um, however, one thing I can say is that here at Illinois State, I spend quite a bit of time doing workshops and talking to faculty and, and other people about this kind of thing. And on campus, it's gotten a pretty big um, response and, and very positive response from people. Um, and at organizations like USASB and other associations of educators, uh, and again, this is all at the university level I, I work at generally, um, this kind of thing tends to get a really good response. Um, but you know that particular blog post, it didn't, but I think that has more to do with I didn't have that big of a footprint in, in the world, so to speak, at that time. Well, we'll get to the K-12 discussion. I'm, I'm not sure they're separate conversations, but I do want to ask at some point about some distinctions there. But before we do so, what did you mean? What was the intent of the blog post? What was the message about the true flipped classroom? Well, I, so if I can digress just a little bit and give a little quick background. I grew up, um, my father was a, a math uh, teacher at the university level for about 40 years. Um, and he taught calculus and differential equations and whatever kind of craziness comes later. Um, and he was very different. He never gave a test. Um, he never had kids calculate stuff at the board. Um, he had people um, just doing crazy things. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's with that type of an approach that, that I grew up and that I look at education. And so I learned my own way and, and start into this world of, of education. And I start hearing all this stuff about the flipped classroom. Um, and it seems like this new sexy thing. We'll come to find out it's been around for many, many decades. It just kind of got revived now with these sexy terms and all this kind of stuff. And I look at it and I think, you know, the flipped classroom, the way most people view it is okay, and it's a very preliminary step, but it really doesn't, in my opinion, make, make much difference at all in and of itself. I think it's one component of a bigger, um, a, a bigger change that can happen. And so that was the intent of my post was basically to say, look, the flip, flip classroom is awesome, and it's a good first step. It's a way to dip your toe in the water, so to speak. But there's a lot more that can be done, um, and, and with, a, with an acknowledgment that, you know, we all have parameters, certainly in a public school and certainly in K through 12, that's different. But uh, just that, that you know, it, it's, not the, it's not the end, and, and it's not maybe as powerful as most people think it is. So we've talked on the show about um, what appears to be a pattern with the flipped classroom working well, and that is when it increases the relationship and the attention and opportunity between the actual instructor and the students versus sending the students off to a, a set of lectures or instructions that they don't know. Have you seen that at all? Would, would, you, would you agree with that? Sorry, agree with what? Say that one more time. Well, the um, what I think that we've talked about on the show is a pattern where that kind of flipping, this flipping of uh, watching material outside of class, and then coming to talk in class, enabled largely by video technology lately, but as you've suggested, is not a new idea. 
it seems to work when that particular strategy increases the actual relationship between the professor or teacher and the students rather than sending them off to see content created by somebody else. It seems to work best when the content is actually created by the instructor. Uh, gotcha. Um, you know, I've seen it both ways and, um, it, you know, it, it, in my mind, you know, if, if well, I guess it's a tough question to, to answer. Mike, Mike thinks one thing, so I'll let him weigh in on this as well here, but I guess in a way it's, it's a tough question to answer. You know, if I'm teaching something and I'm the one that's there interacting with my students um, and I have uh, the context and I have the passion for whatever subject I'm teaching, obviously I think that there's a lot more that can be accomplished and a lot, a lot more power to me doing it and to me delivering and, and that kind of a thing. However, um, you know, there, there's also something to be said with um, sort of subject matter experts from somewhere else helping to deliver the content in, this, in a sense of sending kids out to, you know, any of these vast number of video resources that, that may be there. But I think, you know, Mike's, Mike's got some opinions on this also, I think. Yeah, so let's go to Mike. We are going to come back and sort of completely shift off of that, that model, but I was curious as to your response. Mike, you said overwhelmingly yes. Did you want to explain that? Yes, and, you know, uh, to, to clarify, you know, I don't teach entrepreneurship, so my overwhelmingly yes is of the, the classrooms that are inverted using crypto apps, the system itself, and the relationship that I've got with the teachers. It, it, all of them use various resources and video and stuff from everywhere. But you described it as a connection that is made and built, and I believe that the greatest response for the inverted class, just kind of looking at it in a very general way, is greater when the topic for each of the lectures is introduced, the first three to five sec, uh, minute sec, section of each of those is introduced by that teacher. I, I truly believe that. And, you know, Don has a way of, you know, uh, endearing his students to him in the manner that I don't believe that he even gives himself credit enough, and you see that in, in sort of his answer. But part of the reason why Don's students do so well is because how engaged he is in what they're doing. And so maybe they don't have that lack of connectivity, but in an inverted classroom where you are literally not giving the lecture or planning curriculum for the times that class meet. Rather, you're doing the exact opposite of that. And as an instructor providing consultative uh, engagement with the teams or individuals in the class, to me, you know, that's why I said overwhelmingly yes, because that connection isn't as, you know, it, it, it needs to be there. And having at least in each of the sections that are being delivered, a piece of video from the originating instructor, you know, adds significantly to that than if they were just pointed elsewhere. That's my, you know, my sense. Terrific. So, Don, let's go to the next level, right, which is uh, your own teaching, your own thinking about entrepreneurship leads you to thinking about a different way of describing that, what, what flipping the classroom would be. What would that shift be? 
Sure. So part of what I do whenever I approach anything is I like to break things down into their various components and elements. I like to compartmentalize. Um, and so when I approach teaching, I looked at the classroom and I broke it up into all the parts and pieces I could possibly think of that go into a successful classroom experience. And I did it from my perspective and then from the student perspective because I think, as you said in your in your intro, um, you know, on your blog there, um, you know, it's obvious that I'm in the the university setting because I consider my students the customers. Um, but for my students and their tuition, I'm not here doing what I do. Um, so, you know, I broke all these things into its, into the parts and pieces. So there's the lecture, there's the assignments, there's the testing, there's the assessment, there's the notes, there's the discussion, there's the audit homework, you know, all these pieces. And I looked at each one individually and said, how can we do, number one, is this necessary to accomplish the purpose? Number two, if it is, how can we do it better? Because, you know, the, the first thing I tell my students, um, the very first thing I tell my students the very first day of class is um, that if they, if they came through the American public education system and I put myself in the same group, they got screwed. And so it's my job in the semester I have them, and hopefully they come back in another class of mine so I get them for a year, it's my job to correct as much of that as possible and give them a different experience of education so they can appreciate it and can make it a productive experience because in my general opinion, most of the American public educational system doesn't provide them that. Through no fault of anybody who's I'm sure on this call, <laughs> but that's just my opinion. Um, and so I broke all the things down into parts and pieces and decided I need to rebuild this thing, this thing being my course, in a way that um, invites the students in to, to take ownership of the whole entire process. And in doing so, I realized that this idea of flipping the classroom and sending them out to, to watch some videos and then come back, it just, you know, it, it didn't really work for me. It didn't really move the needle on the proverbial needle for me. So it needed to be a lot more. And so I just sort of, like I do with most things, most things I went way off the, the deep end um, and, and just went crazy with it. So I want to bring Melissa, your wife, back into the story. Um, and I also want to talk about sort of a connection with... Steve. That's okay. And I also talk about a connection with this idea of uh, the lean startup or agile development. So from where I sit, those phrases describe a process of testing things out, iterating, making mistakes, correcting, improving. Uh, it's a fast, rapid development that um, is sort of highly interactive with the user and the customer. Is that an accurate description, and does it help us to understand why you would feel like the American system of education is not serving its students well? Yeah, you hit, you hit the, the hammer or the nail on the head there. Um, it, it, it's an approach, you know, it comes from, uh, you know, the old Japanese system of manufacturing and their lean stuff with Toyota. And it's this approach that's sort of caught on, um, you know, with the startup world and the entrepreneurial world uh, with Eric Reese and Steve Blank and a lot of those folks. And it's basically the idea um, of quick iterations, um, lots of feedback from customers and, and from people. And it's it's the idea of, you know, Steve Blank always talks about getting out of the building. So it's the idea of you have to get the information from your customers, your suppliers, your you know, whoever, and then quickly integrate that and iterate on a on a very quick cycle. Um, 
and you know that that obviously it's a lot more complicated than that. That's a very simplified version of it. Um, and that's how I look at my classroom. Um, you know, I I and, and that's how I think education needs to needs to move is to be much more iterative, much more um, responsive to the students um, and, and to the generations and all of that. I, I don't you know propose to have any big big uh, genius answers or anything, but I I'm willing to get dirty and dig dig in and, and see what we can do. Um, because I think it's important. I think it, it needs to happen. And I have a seven-year-old son that I'm putting in second grade next year, and it terrifies me every day to send him off to school because they're doing the same rote nonsense that I did when I grew up, and and they bored the hell out of me, and and I got myself into trouble because of it. It didn't hold my attention. It didn't challenge me, and I think we need to do that. So I'll step off my soapbox now. So Mike, I want to bring you back in. If if we're preparing students for a world of institutions in which the roles are very structured and very similar, then this model of having the students study the exact same material and be measured in the same ways makes a lot of sense. But if the world is becoming or is more entrepreneurial, then there needs to be obviously an ability to allow students to find their own voice and do independent things. How have you thought about this? Well, I think about it as a lean startup adventure in that, as Joan said, and as you appropriately articulating it, helps them to fail. And failing is a really good thing. It's success through failure. And you know, Steve Mike always says that it's, you know, fail fast before you run out of cash. But that is so, it's so accurate. You learn from the hyper-integration of customer and mentor and educator feedback and the stakeholder groups that are engaged. And you see as ideas evolve, you know, most entrepreneurs are, you know, older than uh, college students. However, the pedagogy of entrepreneurship is, you know, rapidly been, instead of teaching the theoretical, but they're teaching, you know, to create a business and get it rolling. That's clearly not the norm, but it is rapidly changing across the across the globe in terms of how they're educating entrepreneurship. And so, um, giving the students the tools to visualize whatever their business or their idea or the innovation or the project may be, and uh, a safe place where they can experiment and test is what it's all about. And Lean Startup is really just a methodology and approach to, to doing that. So I wonder if we could coin a phrase here. Could we coin the phrase agile learning? Does that, does that describe anything of value? How would we describe the kind of learning that takes place when there is um, an ability to follow different tracks, different threads, experiment, and kind of grow through that experimentation? Um, I, I mean, I think agile is a, a, a good term for it. I think, you know, you can probably look and, and uh, coin it with a lot of different phrases. Um, but I think agile is a very uh, accurate way because it, it has to be, in my opinion, it has to be very adaptive, you know, and and individualized. Um, you know, I think nowadays with all the technology and everything that, that is at people's disposal, 
it becomes much, much easier, certainly, I'm only 38, but, but a lot easier than when I was in school, to produce, um, create, deliver, um, assess everything, a more individualized curriculum. And so whether it's, you know, teaching Algebra 2 um, and, and kids have seriously different learning curves, you know, in that kind of a subject matter, or it's teaching, you know, Shakespeare 101 or entrepreneurship, I think there's a way that educators can agilely um, create and, and maintain an environment where students can learn at their own pace and can take ownership of their own learning if the educator wants to put in the time and effort. It's not an easy thing to do, and it takes a tremendous amount of work. So, Mike, I want to, I'm going to ask you instead of um, Don because uh, it is his wife, but in a blog post that Don wrote, he described kind of Melissa's relationship to him and the supportive nature of that relationship and the ways in which it allowed him to experiment. Is there a lesson for us in terms of thinking about how people guide other people from Don's description of his wife? There's definitely a lesson for us in how he treats his wife and how his wife treats him, I think. I mean, I, uh, over the, the past few years of working with Dylan, the one thing that I've learned is that they respect one another and what they're both doing tremendously. And they really take the time to invest in doing those things. And to me, you know, that Dylan is a dead head is, you know, an endearing thing, but that he is a family man is probably the most amazing thing. I think that works harder than anybody you've ever met, but he takes the time to be with his, you know, with his wife and with his young son, and, you know, that's that's pretty incredible. As a single dad, I know what it takes to do those sorts of things, and, you know, and, uh, yeah, that's what I would say about his wife and lessons we could probably learn from them. I, thanks, Mike. Um, I think all very accurate, and I think the same thing goes for Mike in, in the way and part of why I think we connect so well and, and respect each other so much has to do with the, the father dimension of our lives and, and how we see each other in that role. But, um, you know, i got to say part of, part of what allows me to do what I do because when it comes down to it, what I do in my role as an educator at Illinois State University, um, on a very regularly basis, I put myself in a situation because I don't have tenure. I put myself in a situation where, um, you know, I'm, I'm pushing the boundaries of really what I should be doing according to their rules. And, you know, part of what my wife does and, and allows me to do by giving me her support is, allows me and gives me the confidence to do those kind of things that I know are right, but I also know are a little bit risky. And she's behind me all the time saying, you know, if, if that's what you know is right, then you do that because I want you to do the right thing um, and, and, you know, succeed or fail, do the right thing. So. so we've painted kind of a rosy picture here, right, that the world is entrepreneurial, the, maybe the long tail provides for more entrepreneurial opportunities, that the kind of education students need is less factory style and more entrepreneurial, more um, allowing of failure and experimentation, and that, um, that this is all kind of part of a new evolving picture moving out of the 
of industrial society and production to, to whatever we're moving into, knowledge, work, or beyond. One of the things I can't reconcile with that picture, as much as I personally believe it, is the effects of the recession and the reduction in entrepreneurism. Is there anything there, or is this just sort of a blip on the screen? Is, is, are, are, are we inevitably headed toward more entrepreneurship, or is it possible that we're not? I, I mean, I think we always are. And I, I, one of the things I try to do in, in my role with the Entrepreneurship Center at ISU is to clarify that, you know, for me, um, entrepreneurship, there's a typical um, and traditional um, view of it that has to do with starting a business. Um, that's one component of it. But, you know, part of what I try to tell my students is, you know, if you want to pump gas, if you want to um, work at, at the Gap, if you want to, you know, manage a restaurant, I don't care what it is, no matter what you want to do, there's a way to do it entrepreneurially so that you're more productive and more impactful doing it. Um, that, to me, is really the, the more accurate um, representation of what being entrepreneurial is. And so I think, I, I do think, Steve, that, that, you know, entrepreneurship in terms of starting businesses and new businesses will always be a, a component of society and a very important component of society because that's really the only way that jobs are created. Um, so I think that will always be there, and I think that that will start to rise. But I also think that being entrepreneurial is also going to be a, a huge component to society, and that's part of why I said when I, you know, mentioned when I said that, that I'm kind of scared to send my son to school. That's what school kind of knocks out of us all, I think, um, is that sense of being entrepreneurial, of the, the creativity, the innovation, the individual nature, all that kind of stuff. So I think that is what really is important, and that's what I try to encourage my students. I don't care if they start a business or not. I want them to, to get that spirit back. So there's interesting history here. I've spent a lot of time over the last month reading up on the turn of the century around 1900, the, the progressive era, and an actual sort of stated intention for public education that it reduce voice a feeling there was an excess of democracy, that it was hard to govern a democracy when you had so many people with independent and critical positions that were critical or, or found fault with existing government or business. And so you have a period of time at which there's actually kind of an intention to reduce that voice. I think maybe we could tell the history of the 60s and 70s in a similar way, but maybe a different way of reducing that voice. But Mike, is there something innately important about finding your own voice or the act of creation? And, and if so, how do you describe that? If you mean for me personally, or, or do you mean for the students that are engaged in, you know, finding their own voice and working through these projects? You're talking about me personally? Well, I think both, right? I mean, I think we've sort of assumed that the majority of students are not going to be that proactive. Is that, is that an, an assumption based on our societal need rather than on the reality? Is there something sort of personally important about about finding a space to create and have voice? I think that uh, that finding a space and, and to create and to express yourself 
in any manner, creativity for you, me, or any of the students, I think is, you know, is growing. It's not shrinking. I believe that they they may do it differently than we have historically. And, and in some cases, social applications enable that to occur in a more anonymous manner, but definitely they're out there more than in the historical sense. So, you know, I think there's a little of both in that, you know, you're permitted to be, you know, who you are and create as you wish, whatever that may be, uh, but to share it in a world like never has, you know, like it's never been able before. And so that level of putting yourself out there, I think is, I think is growing and, and entrepreneurship is being threaded through all STEM disciplines. You know, you see the microcurricula of lean being applied to science and engineering courses at Penn and at the Booth School and at lots of places. And in fact, Dr. Winkle was talking to me this morning about a course in the fall that he's going to run that's in tandem with a uh, a third world country educator and the course operates as one that's extremely experimental and experiential and only the technology that exists today does that. So I think that from, to come back to the creativity piece, I think there's more creativity and there's more pedagogy around creativity than there has been in previous years and I think that's a good thing because, you know, we probably can't teach you to be creative about something that is not innately something that an individual is passionate about, but we certainly can do exercises that accentuate and bring out those things that we are passionate about. And I think that there's going to be more of that. I truly do. And that the way that it, that technology has permitted us to broadcast that, put it out there, is going to continue to increase as well. So, Don, as you think about your son growing up and the kind of schooling you'd like for him, can our institutions accommodate this kind of a grand change from conformity to, to voice, or will this happen outside of them or both? Um, I, I think, you know, short term, no. I mean, I think the way our institutions are set up, they're very, very slow moving, slow to change. and I think. To some extent, that's probably um, a good thing on, on many levels. Um, you know, I think that the, the, the approach my wife and I take, and I know a lot of our friends who are, you know, have children the same age take, is that, um, you know, our children are going to go to school. We do everything we can to make sure that, um, you know, they have as positive and, and productive an experience as possible in the school setting. And then we know that we have a lot of work to do outside of the school setting to um, you know, encourage that creativity, encourage the individualization, um, and encourage their exploration of, of learning um, and, and everything that goes with that. So you know, I think that, that parents have to take a big responsibility because I don't see it really changing systematically anytime soon. At what point do either of you think, at what age would either of you think you would want your children to start being responsible for self-directing their own learning? Okay, lots of silence on that one. Um, 
you know, for me, I mean, I think obviously he's seven, my son's seven years old. I think that's probably a little early, um, you know, but I think that um, on some level he's probably already doing that. I mean, he, you know, when 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 we take him to the library and he's going to pick out his own books, when when he's figuring out, you know, that he wants to learn certain things about math, that maybe he hears the fifth graders on the playground talking about and he's curious about it. So, I mean, on some level you could even say that at that age he's still um, taking some, some ownership of his own learning. But I think to systematically take ownership of your own learning experience, it does take a little bit of maturity. And I have the benefit of dealing with kids who are supposedly mature um, as juniors and seniors in college. Um, but I think that, you know, I think they probably need to be in their teenage years at, at minimum to really make it a productive experience. I know Mike's kids are a little older, so he, he might talk to that, but. Yes, my, my kids are teenagers, and I, both are, are boys, and I, I believe wholeheartedly in what John said, but I believe also, as a student of mentors my whole life, that you find that path, and, and you're always, uh, or at least in my life, you always have mentors that are helping you to, to reach that higher goal, and, you know, uh, for me, spending time with my children is often teaching them stuff, whatever it is that they may be into. And I think that that helps them to, you know, decide what it is that they want to do and, and then you can just support them. I mean, I, I believe that, you know, in my life mentors have always been important and I, and I, I stress that unto them. And I believe, to go back just briefly to the point that Don made earlier, I believe the parents are a stakeholder in their children's education and like no other time, they can be engaged directly in the curriculum with with classroom engagement systems and the social technologies, and they're not difficult or expensive to put in place. Um, but they need they need teachers that are passionate about doing that sort of stuff. But engaging the the parents at a very early age in the curricula, in what's going on as a stakeholder in the student's education is something that is tantamount to their success, I think. So we had as a guest on the show uh, a gentleman from Australia named John Hattie, who, if I'm accurately summarizing his meta-study of meta-studies, one of his points was that learning how to self-assess your own learning is a primary skill and should be, in fact, the focus of the learning environment. Don, does that ring a bell with you? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I uh, don't do any real assessment of my students' learning at all. I, I have them do all the assessment of their own learning and also assessment of each other's learning. Um, so I, 100%, I think that's a critical um, skill to learn, not and not just in the classroom, because then they can transfer that outside the classroom and they find the career and they're on this career path and they're working a job so that they can accurately judge whether they are accomplishing the goal that they set out to accomplish, and if not, how far away they are and all those kind of things. So I, mean, I think it's a critical life skill to have. Mike, any comments? No, I'm on, I agree with what John said. 
So Don, in one of your blog posts, you have a call to action, four steps. Uh, do you do you want to kind of describe for those who are who are listening what you think we ought to be focusing on? Uh, in, in focusing on in terms of those four steps. In in the blog post that precipitated the interview, you actually have three steps. The the other one is a sort of a call. I can't remember what the title is. I don't remember, but you had sort of a call to action of four steps. So where are you in your thinking now of things that we really desperately need to do? Well, I think so. So just real quick to to let people know the things that I were kind of, I was kind of thinking about is um, you know one of them is is um, looking at the connection between the student and the teacher and redefining that that mechanism that connects those two um, participants in, in this learning thing. Um, you know, number two is is really kind of innovating, innovating the way that learning environments are set up. You know, from a physical space standpoint to the process and all that kind of thing. Uh, number three is teaching competencies, um, not just a skill, you know, traditional skill rope kind of thing, but really looking more at competencies. And then number four is, is I, I said listen to you, right, as, as a fourth step. So, you know, for those of us that are educators or that play in the education space, we chose that for a reason. Um, and I think for the most part, a lot of us chose that because we think, you know, we want to have an impact. We want to change the world. We want to do this really good thing for these younger generations. So, you know, I think at this point, um, part of it is, um, you know, we have lots and lots and lots of voices in this world. And, and I think that, that they need to start getting organized a little bit and, and figure out how to, um, you know, make systematic changes that can really have a sustainable impact um, in innovating and reinventing the educational model. Um, and I think that we're a long way away from that. But I think these kind of conversations and folks like you who um, facilitate these kind of conversations and the sharing of information it, it is a fantastic uh, platform to get that going. But I think, you know, if we can build on that and get lots of different people you know, coming together to work on that uh, goal, then I think that's that's where we need to go. Mike, Radney in the chat says, it's important to acknowledge that we face pushback at every level of the system. I'm wondering if there's any connection between um, the ways in which uh, large established companies um, respond to entrepreneurial competitors is that, I mean, is that too tenuous a connection, or could we actually look at that and think about what advice we might give those who are being entrepreneurial in education? I think that there are parallels, no doubt. In all industries, when there is disruption that is occurring, you know, the establishments and the institutions, you know, seek to impede change and, you know, move it in a direction that's consistent with the status quo, clearly. And so there are parallels in the enterprise and in higher education. And if you, if you consider that in all disruption, regardless of the market, it, there tends to, you know, be either internal or external disruption as a catalyst 
but ultimately there's both internal and external disruption that aids in the disruption of the market into something new. And I think in education, those types of things are actually, you know, happening right now. You know, you see the MOOCs that, you know, are elitist and, you know, the like, but I believe the democratization of the MOOCs is upon us and that the math teacher, and I, I, I saw in the, uh, the chat a little thread about math. I taught math for five years, actually, and have a single subject teaching credential in math, and the catalyst to Quipu was a student engagement system at at-risk schools uh, in, in teaching them algebra, frankly. And because of Gardner's work on multiple intelligence, it's, it's imperative that, you know, even black and white, uh, you know, subjects as math, or apparently black and white, are really not. And you have to be able to deliver them in a the manner that's going to be engaging for the students. And, you know, that may be using Quipu. It may be you getting outside into the field underneath the tree. It's a mix of all of those things. And that's not going to change. And I believe you know, that the similarities in education and, and the enterprise are really close. However, education has historically and is well known to move slower, which is why it's one of the, you know, the last industries really that's being disrupted by education 2.0 and the types of things that, you know, your very forum exists as a result of. This is so so interesting and so valuable. Don, um, college students are already likely to be a little bit more proactive in their willingness to take on their own education. But as Radney sort of drilled down on that question of pushback, his focus was actually on students who were reluctant to take that kind of responsibility in just one of the traditional, what, do, what am I supposed to do to get an A? And we heard earlier in the chat about parents who actually put pressure on the teachers to teach in traditional ways. How, how have you addressed that, at least with your college students? Sure. And something I want to say, Steve, if, if, if I can step aside for just a second, is um, you know, I come from a family of educators. And um, for all those listening, and one of the big things I always mention is that I do teach in a, a university environment. And I always want to give huge props to people who teach in a K through 12 environment. I don't have the stones to do that, um, and and I really, really, um, you know, am am very, very appreciative of the people who take that on because that is a huge challenge that I just was not willing to do. Um, so anyway, I just want to say for everybody that's listening or that that gets a hold of this um, that does that, I really, you know, want to want to say thank you for for your willingness to engage in that world. Um, you know, for me, I mean, I, I get that a lot. I get a lot of uh, very uh, traditional kind of students who they just want the same old lecture slide, PowerPoint slide, delivery, um, tell me what to do, tell me when to do it, tell me how to do it approach. Um, and, you know, what I tell my students is um, they're responsible. They're responsible to figure out how they're going to get from point A to point B. And some of them, I think, like I've seen earlier in the thread, you know, some of them, um, they're, they're uh, kids who, who like to write. Some of them, it's video. Some of them, it's, you know, there's all these different ways that these kids want to engage in learning and, and that they do a better job of learning that's, that sort of fits with them. 
I don't care what it is. They can do it however they want to do it. They set it up however they want to do it. The point is, in my classes, to try it, to fail, because that's pretty much what they're going to do, and to learn from it. However that needs to happen, it happens. And at the end of the day, they need to be able to look back and assess and say, this is what I said I was going to do. So at the beginning of the semester, they have to tell me in writing, this is how I'm going to get from point A to point B. And this is how I'm going to assess myself. And then at the end of the semester, they have to look back and say, well, here's what I said I was going to do. Here's what I did based on that. This is what I give myself. And I've had students fail themselves. Um, and I've never once had to, to mark a student down. I've only had to mark students up because the ones that are really hard on themselves, um, you know, I've had to, to give them the credit they, they do deserve, but they, they're not willing to give themselves. Um, and for the parents, again, luckily I teach in a university setting, so I'm not by law allowed to talk to the parents um, until the student gives me permission, which I always encourage the students not to do um, because I want the students to, um, you know, keep their own voice and not, not let me be a part of that equation. Plus, it's just not any fun. Okay, we're about 10 minutes away from wrapping up, so we're going to move to Q&A here. If you have a question for Donor Mike, please feel free to put it in the chat, or you can actually raise your virtual hand in the participant window. It's the third icon over the hand, and we'll give you the microphone. A couple have come through that I've seen, uh, one of which is, have either of you seen a good example of a secondary school environment that you felt was uh, supportive and conducive to the kind of entrepreneurship learning you're discussing? Uh, I haven't. Did you say adverse to it or that are embracing it? Oh, no, supportive of it. Oh, well, I mean, there's a laundry list of those that are supportive of it. You know, ILSTU, Rapson, I mean, you can go on to NYU, you know. You can go on and on forever. Business Week publishes the top entrepreneurship schools. And surprisingly, I'll bet most of us will find some schools on there that they may have never heard of or know little about. And it's as a result of those entrenchment programs that are creating real businesses. That puts them on the list. And their methods of, you know, even before they can start up of entrenchment, and failing, failing fast, supportive, crutching them along the way, scaffolding the pedagogy, modeling that behavior, failing and trying it again. And, you know, that it's been visualized with a business model or that it's been proceduralized by the startup is, you know, helpful. But indeed, it's those methodologies that have made these guys the top schools in entrepreneurship over the last decade that you know, aren't the, you know, the Ivy League schools. They're, you know, they're the roll your sleeves up, blue collar, cooperative education, Drexel universities of the world. I think the question was actually, I didn't ask it well, but I think the question was actually about secondary schools, although that's a really helpful answer as well. And oh, I'm thinking sorry, of, talking about high schools. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's okay. But I'm thinking of big picture learning, uh, for those of you who are interested, uh, um, you know, mentioned in the chat, um, of course, are High Tech High and others. Um, I, I don't think we'll dwell on this, but um, certainly there are some examples. And, in, and, and I think higher education has always done a better job of modeling the learning environment. And so that's a really valuable 
place to look as well. Uh, there was another question, Don, for you specifically. Are you tenured? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Like I said, I give a lot of workshops and such around my university, and I really am encouraging, um, you know, a riot or a revolution or whatever. I mean, I get a lot of words thrown at me in my school, and that's one of the first things I always make sure I tell people is that I am not tenured. And the reason I make sure to tell people that is because here I am doing really crazy things, and I'm encouraging to these other people to do really crazy things, and I want them to understand that I don't have that safety net below me. I don't have tenure. I'm, I'm doing these things knowingly and willingly risking my job because I believe passionately that it's the right and the only way to, to do the job I was hired to do effectively. And Don, there's a, a really interesting connection here. A Tony Wagner was on the show, and somebody in the chat will remember the name of his book on uh, student entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, that's not actually it exactly, but somebody please make a note there if you remember. But he talked about that specifically and about how those um, educators in higher ed institutions, creating innovators, sorry, that's the name of the book, how those uh, educators who were really impacting the students, even at places like Stanford, and especially at places like Stanford, tended not to be the tenured professors. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, we, we could go on about this one forever, Steve, but I think that part of what we see in higher education uh, tends to be, and I'm not certainly making too broad a generalization here, but it tends to be that when a lot of people get tenure, they sort of sit back and take a breath. It's not an easy hurdle to get over, um, and so a lot of times when people do get over the hurdle, they just sort of start to coast a little bit, um, and, uh, you know, we see it all the time. Um, so, you know, I am one who would rather do away with the tenure system, um, but like I said, again, that's, that's a whole different conversation. Don, there's a question in the chat about um, the actual approach you're taking to entrepreneurial education. We're probably not going to have time to drill down too deeply on that, so maybe you could put a link to your blog uh, in the chat and people could read or, or reach out to you specifically. Suzanne wants to know about liberal arts education. She asked this earlier in the chat, and, and I actually responded that I think there's an, uh, a millennia-old debate between training and education which liberates. Um, would either of you want to would, would want to talk about the liberal arts or, or about this sort of larger question of the, the reason that we educate? Go ahead, Mike. Okay, so. I was just going to say that it's the great equalizer. Education uh, provided to places that never had the ability to access that education is something that is before us, and I believe that it's the great equalizer and neutralizer of the peoples around the globe. It's, gonna, it's the only thing that can change that. Don, any thoughts about uh, the liberal arts? Uh, sorry, I got lost in the chat there for a minute, Steve. Um, uh, what was the question? Liberal arts? But just uh, 
uh, Suzanne has talked throughout the chat about the liberal arts background and the value of the liberal arts. Is that something that you've thought about yourself, though, coming from a, a sort of a, a dad as a as a as a math teacher? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I think that you know the, the one thing I tell I tell anybody that that any student that comes through my office is um, they got to take philosophy. They got to take the liberal, liberal arts. You know, my wife has a degree in philosophy. Um, and as, as much as I hate the fact that that makes her really, really good at arguing, um, it is an unbelievable um, experience to sit through philosophy courses, to think about philosophy and formulating arguments, and all the things that you learn in those kinds of courses and reading the great works of literature, just expanding your mind and seeing what's possible and studying history and all the, I mean, you know, you can't, I mean, there's a reason why in it, almost any institution of higher education says, before you get to the stuff that you really want to get to, we're going to make you do all this other stuff first. I mean, there's a reason why they do that and why it works. And so I think liberal arts is, is critical to any learning environment, without question. Okay, we've probably got time for one final question while we're waiting for that, or if you've put it in and I've missed it, please indicate so that I know. Uh, Dawn and I have talked about at some point trying to pull together a virtual conference on student entrepreneurship. I don't think it's in the cards immediately because of their big project right now. But I'm still very interested in this and interested in kind of thinking about how we might do that. So if anybody in the audience has some thoughts, please feel free to reach out to me. I'll put my email address in the chat. Do we have a final question? Uh, Dawn, Mike, thank you so much. Do either of you want have, have anything that you wanted to say that we haven't uh, brought up? Well, I could go on for a long, long time, Steve. Um, I, I, again, I really, really appreciate um, the the chance to to talk to you and and to share this with uh, everybody that checked in. Um, you know, it, it's like I put here in the chat room. Um, I put my blog up there that I don't work on enough. I also put my email address there. I'm more than happy to talk to and communicate with anybody at any time about anything having to do with education and entrepreneurship or any of that stuff. Love it. Um, it's what I spend my life doing and, and what I love to do. So, um, you know, I can be a resource to anybody for any reason in that space. Um, and I just, you know, the, the, the thing that I always try and encourage people and, and leave people with when I talk to them is, is that I'm on the really, really far end of the crazy spectrum, I think. Um, and the, the approach that I have and the things that I talk about and the things that I do, they don't work for everybody. Um, as a package because it really is pretty extreme. But I think there's little bits and pieces everybody can take away from, from the things that I do and the things that I talk about. And if you can try one little teeny thing, make one little change, one little tweak in your classroom and try something a little different, a little more innovative, even just for one day, in one part of one lesson in one day and see how it feels and ask the students how it feels and get feedback, I think what happens is then that starts the movement to, to doing it on a more systematic level in, in one course and then in two courses and then across the school. It starts that, that you know, rising tide that, that it brings all shifts up. So that would be my thing is, is just try something. Just try to be a little different and try something a little new and innovative and see how it goes. Thanks, John. Mike, any final words? I just want to say thank you for uh, having me as a part of this this interview. It's definitely been a pleasure, and it's been insightful. The the supervised chat and the the audience is engaged, and thank you very much. 
Thanks to both of you. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Don Winkle and Mike Issa coming up in August. Ann Michelson and her students who have written a book on connected learners. David Marshak on self-design and much more coming your way. Take care, everybody. Have a great night or day, depending on where, where you are. Bye now. <laughs>